Before we actually get, get started with the message, last week Walt said something to, to the crowd about, um, uh, a, in passing, about a trip that I had made to Nepal where um, there was some healing that took place. And I, I just wanted to show you a picture of the young lady that, um, that I most remember in terms of, of healing in Nepal. Um, it's the lady with the ball cap on on the on your uh on your right hand side sitting there she was she's a pastor's daughter and she was paralyzed completely paralyzed from the waist down it started with her feet and she was numb and then it moved up 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 until it was at her waist and she was paralyzed they had to carry her she was in the bible college there in Kathmandu and they had to carry her up to this picnic that we were attending here and uh this was after um, um, after some time that she had been in hospitals at doctors and all all these uh, uh, modern medical miracles that could take place didn't happen and when I arrived in Kathmandu uh, our our hosts asked that uh, I would go pray with her and I'm for healing and I'm thinking. I came here to talk about Nehemiah, and I don't know that, you know, I, I knew in my heart that she wasn't going to be healed. I, I couldn't do that. And here, my very first day on the ground in Kathmandu, and I was going to make a fool of God, <laughs> actually of myself, you know. Uh, I couldn't do this. So they convinced me to, to go to the hospital, to the bed where she was, and, and pray with her. And on the way over there, and as we're uh, leaving the house, uh, the lady who, who you're going to meet here in about a month as, as they come uh, here to spend a week with us, uh, she started singing all these hymns in English about the blood of Jesus. And I, I, I had forgotten all of them. I, and I certainly didn't know all the stanzas to them. And she knew every stanza, every verse of every song about the blood of Jesus. And she's singing that going over to the hospital. I'm still thinking, how am I going to get out of this? And... Um, as we walked into the room, I just laid my hand on the bed. I didn't dare touch her at that point. I didn't know my young. Well, I didn't know we were supposed to touch people to pray for healing, and uh, prayed for her in in the name of Jesus that she would be healed. And she wasn't healed. We went home. I'm thinking, okay, I've got to start tomorrow teaching at the Bible College, and I've already discredited myself and God. You know, they're not going to believe a thing I have to say. Well, about 5.30 in the morning, the call came to, to our house that this girl was up and walking around in her uh, hospital room. And I think the next picture shows a, a trip that we went on in 2002, 4, 5, something like that. And Karen was doing a women's conference, and here she is, all dressed up, she could dance. She's married now. She's the wife of a pastor. They have a wonderful ministry. Uh, can't wait to see if they have children now. That It's been long enough that they probably would. God did it. It was nothing that I did. I, and we talk about faith and healing. I didn't even have faith. If I'm honest with you, I didn't even have faith. I knew it wasn't going to happen. Yet, all he called me to do was pray. And he did the rest. That's what we're talking about with our prayer ministers. We're in the eighth chapter of Matthew 
doing the stuff here. And I want you to open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew 8, 18 through 22. If you don't have Bibles, there's some up here at the front that you're welcome to use. Or if you don't have a Bible at all, take one with you. We'd love for you to have it. In addition, the scriptures will be on the uh, screen up here. And in this church, we believe that this is the inspired and infallible Word of God, the only rule for everything in our lives. So listen to God's Word. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Again, just a few scriptures, but packed with stuff that we could look at. And this morning I want to look at these two would-be Christ followers. The first would-be Christ follower uh, is, is mentioned here right off the bat. They went over to the other side, and uh, as they were getting ready to go to the other side, the teacher of the law came to him. So it's the teacher of the law, this man who had been observing Jesus for quite a while. And he came to him, and he said, in essence, hey, dude, dude, I've been been listening to what you've been saying, and I can buy into everything. It's just a great message. And the healings that you've done, fantastic. You know what? I'm going to follow you wherever you go. I just think that'd be great. And Jesus says to him, "Hmm, hold on here. Maybe you don't know what you're really getting into. Maybe there's a lot more to this than you see. You see, following Jesus isn't an exciting and triumphant march following behind the one who has God's authority and power the one who uh, we can watch doing the stuff, mighty and powerful things as they are. Following Jesus is a commitment to the one whose authority has been given in order that he can go places. He can go to the places in the world where people are hurting and where he's needed. And he can be there with the sick and suffering people. We're his extension today. And he says, even foxes and birds have places to go back to when, when they're dog tired at the end of the day. But Jesus has none. He has none. Jesus has a temporary home. Yeah, we've talked about that in Capernaum. But now, right now, he belongs on the road. He belongs... In the villages, he belongs in the countryside. He belongs on the roads and paths around Galilee. Wherever it is that God's people are in need and are hurting. And he'll have no rest for his head. Until at last it rests lifeless on the cross. Some of us may feel that we're called to exotic places around the world, faraway places, places we've only read about, 
uh, places like Nepal or Africa or India or South America or who knows where. But people, their renovation is set right in the middle of a community of hurting, suffering people right here. We see them going up and down the road. We see them over at McDonald's. We see them in the condos behind us. Suffering, hurting people that need us. There's, there's no higher calling that I can think of than to be a spouse, to be a parent, to be a teacher who is totally sold out to Jesus Christ. And to do so right here in our own community is ever bit as rewarding as it is to go around the world and do it. God puts us here for a reason. What do you do first thing in the morning? The very first thing you do in the morning. You get up and, guys, I'm, I'm not talking, talking to the ladies here. Guys, get up and shave. Is that the first thing you do? Have a cup of coffee? You, uh, um, Mark, exercise? Uh, you, <laughs> you read the newspaper? You uh, maybe pray. How about pray? Watch TV? What is it that you do? And then let me ask you this. What would it take for someone to change that routine in the morning? Other than forcible physical violence, what would it take for, somebody, for you to change that uh, routine that you're in? Uh, a bad report from the doctor? Uh, um, a death in the family? Uh, an accident maybe that you have? Something radical, I would think, it would take to change that routine. So let's look at the second would-be disciple here. For the devout Jew in Jesus' day and in our own day, the most sacred and solemn thing that one can do every day, every morning, first thing in the morning routine, would be to say the Shema. The Shema. The Jewish prayer that's found in Deuteronomy 4, 4 through 5, that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So important it is to the Jewish people that there are mezuzahs that they put on their door, little tubes with this scripture rolled up inside the mezuzah. Every time they go out, every time they come in, past their doorpost, they think of the Shema. They say it silently to themselves. Saying the Shema is regarded by official Jewish teaching as the most important thing one can do every day. But there is one thing, one thing only, that takes precedence even over saying the Shema. According to rabbinical teaching, when a man's father dies, he has such a strong obligation to that father to give him a proper burial, that the funeral comes first before everything else, even before saying the Shema, as, as important as the Shema is. And here's the problem. I've told you this before. Here's the problem with that little what would Jesus do thing that we used to say. What would Jesus do? So 
when one of those following Jesus said to him, let me go and organize my father's funeral, we might have expected Jesus to say, oh, well, of, of course. Of course you've got to do that. You, you must do that. Go and do it and, and then come and follow me. That'll be okay. But what Jesus actually says is one of the most shocking things in all the gospel stories that we have. Let the dead bury their own, he said. You must follow me right now. Kind of cold. And when we look at it real closely, he's saying, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. You must follow me right now. We don't even know if the man's father was dead. And I'm betting that he probably was not. Because another Jewish tradition is that the person is buried within 24 hours, certainly within the same day that the death has taken place. And if the father had recently deceased, was recently deceased, he wouldn't have been there following Jesus. Not this day. He'd have been burying his father. The man may have been using this as a this sort of a, what we would call a future obligation as a way of postponing following Jesus for some time, maybe, maybe for several years. If his dad is in some sort of lengthy illness, I, you know, we'll, just, we'll just wait a while, and then I'll come follow you. And who could blame him? I mean, we all want to keep our options open, don't we? We want to be sure we've got options. After all, his ministry was new, it was very new. And this pastor, this, this uh, unknown local man was doing the ministry. And he may need to listen for a while to him to make sure that what the pastor was saying was, was ringing true in his ears and, and that his message was really worth the commitment that he was going to have to make. What if, what if this teacher was teaching radical things? What, what if the teacher upset the apple cart uh, in terms of rabbinical teaching that, that had been the norm, the tradition? Or worse yet, what if he offended the Romans who were ruling the area? Oh, yeah, that, that spelled trouble for all of them involved. Yeah, I better sit back and wait. Well, whatever Jesus was doing, it was so important, it was so urgent, it was so immediate that it was the one thing that mattered, the one thing that took precedent. Whatever else we're thinking of doing, this following Jesus thing comes first. What do you call yourself, by the way? A Christian or a Christ follower? What is a Christ follower? By definition, a Christ follower is a disciple of a rabbi. Rabbi is a teacher disciple is a pupil and he wants to walk so closely to the rabbi that the dust of the rabbi's steps will cover his own feet he wants to be in tune with every move that the master makes i think of of uh, movies that we've seen like karate kid and like uh uh even even star wars the luke 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 skywalker uh part, where they actually take on the characteristics of the person who is training them. And if we use that in a Christian sense, we want to become like Christ.
We want to follow him so closely that it's hard to tell us from him by our actions. And Jesus' understanding of discipleship is quite different than ours. If an unchurched person should come to most churches in America today, even if they indicated that they wanted to be a Christ follower and, uh, uh, you know, actually commit themselves to the church, most of our churches would, first of all, be delighted. They'd be just tickled to death that somebody had shown up. Most of them would invite that person to give a testimony in the church. That'd be nice, wouldn't it, to hear about this person's story? And most would quickly receive him into the membership. But in this account, as in other accounts that we can look at, I'm thinking rich young ruler here, Jesus rejected this enthusiasm. He actually seems to have turned away these two would-be disciples. As Jesus evaluated them, the first one, he thought, was too quick to promise. I'll follow you. The second was too slow to perform. I'll follow you, but I've got to take care of this first. Jesus told the first that following him means being homeless. And he told the second that loyalty to him comes before loyalty, even to the closest members of your family. And as far as we know, both of these guys turned away. They couldn't make the commitment. And here's the important thing. Jesus didn't run after them. He didn't say, wait just a minute. Could we have a cup of coffee over at Starbucks and maybe talk about this a little bit? He didn't give them a track on why I should follow Jesus. He let them go. I don't think it's any accident that, that Matthew puts these two accounts right in the middle of some scriptures about the authority of Jesus over sickness. That's what we've been looking at here, the healing accounts. Matthew wants to show to his readers and to us that the same Jesus who had authority over sickness and nature and casting out demons also has authority over the lives of his disciples. Here's the big idea for today. Jesus alone determines what following him will involve. Not you and not me. If we're going to tell Jesus what to follow him would look like, we're going to be sorely disappointed. He will decide what following him looks like. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's got to be on his terms, not on your own. And being a Christ follower in some places is serious stuff. There's countries in the world where to even say the name Jesus, you would be persecuted. You might be imprisoned, tortured, or worse. Even today, 2011, that's happening. So consider the cost before you make that commitment. In days of hardship, particularly the, the persecution that I was talking about, those who are in the process of becoming Christ followers, they count the cost carefully before they take on that mantle of Christ follower. But in the good times, in the, in the prosperous times, the times that we don't really have to worry about coming to a building to 
uh, worship publicly, the cost doesn't seem so high. And people take it lightly, the name of Christ. Without undergoing that radical renovation that Christ followers, Christ following demands of us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German churchman of the, of the Nazi era, called this in all of his writings, he called it cheap grace. And he said this, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. Cheap grace is communion without confession and absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. And to contrast that, I, I was thinking of something we could call it. We'll call it costly grace. And costly grace to me is, is the treasure hidden in the field. It says, for the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. Costly grace is the pearl of great price for which the merchant will sell all that he has. Costly grace is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. What is it today that's causing you to stumble? What is it in your life? Costly grace is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves everything, his nets, his job, his family, and follows him. And again, I say you can do that in this environment. You don't have to go there. You can do it where you are. It just means being totally committed. Life, life today is too fast. Don't you agree? Contact with other people is too impersonal. Time is too precious to make that kind of commitment. Or is it? Even in the church today, we are often far more quick to ask somebody to join this committee or back this project or serve on this board than we are to counsel them in examining their relationship to God through Jesus Christ. After all, isn't that the important thing? And who can blame them? It seems like as long as you are performing in the church, few people will question your relationship to God. Give me a job. Let me serve. I'm good to go. How many pastors and teachers stress that a personal, intimate, self-denying, costly, and persistent following of Christ is absolutely, positively necessary if a person is to be acknowledged by Jesus on the final day. Well done, good and faithful servant. And in the absence of that kind of teaching, millions drift on. Assuming that because they made some verbal acknowledgement about Jesus Christ 10 or 20 or 30 or more years ago, and they haven't done anything terribly bad in the time since, 
that they're therefore Christians in good standing. That's not what commitment and following Christ is all about. At Capernaum, Jesus challenged those prospective followers to count the cost. And today at Renovation Church, he does exactly the same. It hasn't changed. It's not unusual at all to hear Christians talk about Jesus as Lord and how that title should be acknowledged by everybody. But many of those same well-intentioned yet erring Christians believe that it's possible to have Jesus as your Savior without having Him as your Lord. I attest to that personally. Grew up in a Christian uh, environment and Christian family. Um, moved here to the beach years ago. Heard a, heard a message about, I don't know, stewardship or something. Went to see my pastor and talked to him and tell him, I don't have any money, but I've got lots of time that I can give and I'd love to do that. And he's, he's sitting across, me in this, uh, across from me in this uh, chair, puts his hands behind his head and he says, George... It's not your money. It's his money. And it's not your time. It's his time. And it's not your relationships. He gave you all those relationships. And it's not your education. He, he educated you and he gave you all the, all the things in your life that you have. It's not your house. It's his house. He intends for you to use it for him. It's not your family. He gave you your family. And as he's doing that, I mean, the light bulbs are going on. All this time, I had called Jesus Lord and Savior. I was happy for him to be Savior, but I didn't have a clue what it meant for him to be Lord, to turn everything over to him and allow him to manage those things. When, when I tell this, I say... Uh, I had two boys that were both hellions, and they were into everything that you could think of that they shouldn't have been into. And it wasn't long after this conversation with my pastor that I prayed. You know, Karen and I had tried everything. Every, we read every book. Uh, we followed every principle we could. To, we took the phones out of the house. We took the TVs out of the house. We... I locked down at night. I mean, strip search. We did everything. And, and they were still acting up. We couldn't figure it out. So not long after that, I prayed to God. You know, God, they're your children. And I'm going to give them back to you. <laughs> Which I did. And it wasn't... But about two weeks later, the, John came to me and said, Dad, how do I pray that prayer to make Jesus Lord of my life? And then the other one, a few weeks later, while we were gone from the house, knelt down beside his bed and said he wanted to accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior. I believe all because I was willing to turn it over. I was willing to give it up. It wasn't mine, but it took a commitment took a strong commitment to do that. And today I want to call for a commitment to the true Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to challenge the presumptions of those who claim to be Christians, even, even sitting right here, while at the same time 
as claiming to be Christians disregard or disobey the commands that Jesus gives to us. I mean, just think about this. I was, I was thinking this week as I was writing this. If we could produce a generation of those who are genuinely committed to Jesus Christ and to obeying Him by the power of the Holy Spirit, listen, listen to this. That generation of believers, those Christ followers, could and would radically change the world. One generation. We could completely change the world. That's what I want. Matthew's picture of Jesus has many facets, and we're just now beginning to see some of these as we go through these uh, chapters in Matthew. Authority and power are strangely concentrated in this one that's called Jesus. Nobody at this time really... Uh, understood that, of course, but every one of them found him compelling, absolutely compelling. They didn't know why they were called to him. And, and as Columbo used to say on TV, some of you don't, don't even know who Columbo is in reruns, but as Columbo used to say, there's just one more thing, just one more thing, just one more question. What does this title, Son of Man, mean? What does that mean? Well, Son of Man was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. Not as a Son of Man, but as the Son of Man. I'm going to look at Daniel chapter 7 real briefly here. Beginning at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and his hair, the hair of his head was white as wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened." Jump down to verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men's of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Why does Jesus use this term, the Son of Man? Well, the is a definite article, and it means the one and the only Son of Man. And of course he's referring back to this Daniel passage. And Jesus is saying, you know, that dude, Daniel, he was referring to me. I am he. I am the guy he's talking about. Jesus uses the term son of man to affirm his full deity, that he is fully God. He uses the term son of man to teach that he has authority on earth to forgive sin. To show that he would ransom his people from their sins. 
to show that he would die on the cross and rise from the dead on the third day. To show that he will return one day in judgment. Daniel reveals to us that one day every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. You will bow to Jesus Christ, either in grateful adoration or in bitter defeat. If you bow in adoration and not in bitter defeat, then the time for bowing is right now. This day, today. Don't let the demand for absolute loyalty or the difficulties of following Jesus keep you back as, as they seem to have done with these two would-be disciples. Run to Jesus. Cast yourself before him at his feet. Worship him as God and Savior and Lord of your life. And get on with the task of living your life for him every single moment for him. I've tried to give you a question each week with, with this series. And the question that I want to end with today is this. As a Christ follower, how can I live my life in such a way that other people will want to follow him too? How can you make that difference? What can you do to make that difference? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, in the upper room, he was having dinner with his disciples, and he, he took the bread, and he broke the bread saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. I don't know, but I think he could probably see the pain and the suffering that it would take for him to lay out his body for us, for each of us, to have the opportunity to even follow him some 2,000 years later. And in the same way, he took the cup and poured the wine into it saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you remember my death until I come. And he will return. And all knees will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask our servers, please, to come. As they're coming, let me remind you that this is not a renovation table. This is the Lord's table. It's open to everyone here who trusts and believes in Jesus Christ as, as their Lord and Savior. Um, in our renovation family, we use real wine. If you choose not to use wine, we have juice at either one of the locations that um, the servers can direct you to. And in addition, um, some of our new prayer partners are going to be around the room here and love to pray with you if you have an issue on your mind. Um, Karen and Andy, I guess, over here. Linda, would you and Andrew please come to this side? Uh, if, if they are 
otherwise occupied, there will be plenty of us that will be happy to uh, assist you with prayer this morning. Take some time to think about that commitment to following Christ. Take some time to think about what he did in this transaction here at this table. And then come, as you feel led, to receive the gift that he has for us at this table. Come.